All right, today we are um, going back to the major prophets. We've been looking at uh, the minor prophets, and we have three left in the minor prophets, the last three, uh, which we'll come back to later. But for now, we're going to look at Jeremiah and Lamentations. And um, we're doing this order. We're kind of bouncing around from historical to prophecy, from major to minor, back to major. And the reason for that is we're trying to get kind of a chronological picture of how all this, these events play out. So what you've seen so far is that we've been kind of waiting for Assyria to attack Israel, 722 B.C., and so you've got all the historical um, events that happen with the kings and so on during that time, and then you have the prophets coming before Israel and saying, listen, repent, and, um, and God will spare you, and um, of course... Most of them don't listen, and so Assyria does come in attack. And so now we are here in um, in Jeremiah, and um, the the northern tribe of Israel has already fallen. And now Jeremiah is speaking to those who are remaining there in in Judah. And Judah's next. Remember, Judah is about to be invaded another 150 years after after Israel in 586 BC. And so that's coming. And Judah's prophesying. Uh, around 625 B.C. And um, he actually prophesies from before the fall of Jerusalem all the way into the exile. So he actually has this long span of time, about 50 years of prophesying, where he tells Israel to repent, and then after the exile, he tells them what the next steps are. And, and of course, the same focus is there, that they must turn from God, or, or turn from the idols and turn to the living God and um, all sorts of sin and, and trouble that's coming on the nations um, or, or on the, the nation of Judah. And so they need to turn in faith to God. So let's pray and then we'll um, look at this together. Father, we're thankful for the warnings that you have brought. And um, Lord, we sometimes are averse to warnings because... They, um, they, they are uh, a little bit disconcerting for us. They are unsettling. It kind of shows that that we um, need to change our actions, and and especially when it comes uh, to warnings of judgment, we we have to take stock of our own lives, and we can't just settle with. Um, we are good enough and, and we are going to avoid that thing. Instead, we need to recognize that, that um, we need to look internally, look at the Scriptures and see ourselves for who we are and, and come to repentance. And so there's much we can learn from the example of Judah and Israel and we pray that you'd help us this morning to see that and be willing to be open to correction from your Word, from your Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The theme there of Jeremiah, um, the Old Covenant has failed, not because it itself was bad, but because the people were not able to keep it due to their sinful hearts. And so, therefore, a new covenant is needed which will involve new hearts for the people of God. And so, um, we're going to, um, to take a look at several of these passages. Jeremiah is uh, one of the longest books in the Bible, if not the longest, um, maybe even longer than Psalms. I think a number of verses it is. Um, and so we're not going to be able to cover all of it. 
Uh, but let, instead, let's turn to chapter 11. We'll start there in chapter 11. We need to see Judah's problem. And so chapter 11 really gives us a, a summary of what the problem is. And specifically, God has laid His covenant out before the people in verses 1-6. through six, And then He says, listen, you've broken it in two ways. You've not listened to Me and you've turned to other gods. And then He's going to pronounce judgment on them in verses 11-17. through 17. So verse 1, The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Hear the words of the covenant and speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and say to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Cursed is the man who does not heed the words of this covenant, which I commanded your forefathers in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt from the iron furnace, saying, Listen to my voice and do according to all which I commanded you. So you shall be my people, and I will be your God. In order to confirm the oath which I swore to your forefathers to give them a land flowing with milk and honey as it is this day, then I said, Amen, O Lord. So this all should sound familiar. Um, this is God saying, Listen, I've made a covenant with you as my people, and so you, I have certain responsibilities, God saying, to you, and you have certain responsibilities to me. And if either one of us breaks it, then um, let a curse come upon them. Obviously, God's not going to break His end of the deal, uh, and, but the people are. Verse 6, And the Lord said to me, Proclaim all these words in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, saying, Hear the words of this covenant and do them, for I solemnly warned your fathers in the day that I brought them up from the land of Egypt, even to this day, warning persistently, saying, Listen to my voice. Yet they did not obey or incline their ear but walked each one in the stubbornness of his evil heart. Therefore, I brought on them all the words of this covenant, which I commanded them to do, but they did not. So, here we have, for hundreds of years, God sending prophet after prophet after prophet to them to try to bring them back, but they would not listen. And God says, um, this is the constant theme of you, that I am sending my word to you and you are refusing to listen. Would someone read chapter 7? Just Everybody else can stay here in chapter 11, but someone else want to read chapter 7, verse 13? Jonathan? Looks like you're turning there. Can you do that for us? So here... We have God of the universe and the God the Redeemer, really, the one who brought them out of Egypt and they're closing their ears. They're having kind of deaf ears to God who is their deliverer. And Jeremiah says something similar in chapter 25, verses 3 and 4. It says, From the thirteenth year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, even to this day, these twenty-three years, the word of the Lord has come to me and I've spoken to you again and again, but you have not listened. And the Lord has sent to you all His servants, the prophets, again and again, but you have not listened. Instead, they listen to the untruths and the lying words of, of the false prophets. And so through the prophet Jeremiah, God says, they have healed the brokenness of my people superficially, saying, peace, peace, where there is no peace. So um, these false prophets are coming along and saying, listen, everything's okay. Between you and God, you're fine. And... Um, saying, peace, peace, where there is no peace. And, and God's saying, listen, you people, you're listening to them. I'm saying, conflict, conflict. There's lots of conflict between you and me. There is a war going on between you and me. And they're saying, no, we, we don't want to hear that. Instead, they listen to the ones that say the, 
the things that they want to hear instead of the truth that they need to hear. And I wonder how many preachers in America today might be guilty of the same thing. The ones who give the message of, it's okay, everything's okay with you and God. And that kind of preaching is worthless. In Jeremiah 7, 8, God says, you are trusting in deceptive words to no avail. I wonder how far removed much of American Christianity is from the truth of God's Word, where churches just don't preach the Word of God anymore. It's substituted for empty words which are designed to scratch itching ears. And as a result, many Christians aren't growing and churches are not being built up with genuine, gospel-believing, Christ-loving, Holy Spirit-filled, Bible-saturated disciples of the Lord. Notice verse 8 again here in chapter 11. says in the middle of the verse that um, they did not obey or incline their ear, but walked each one in the stubbornness of his evil heart. And then look at verse 9. The Lord said to me, A conspiracy has been found among the men of Judah and among the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They have turned back to the iniquities of their ancestors who refused to hear my words, and they have gone after other gods to serve them. The house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken my covenant, which I made with their fathers. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I am bringing disaster on them which they will not be able to escape. Though they will cry to me, yet I will not listen to them. Then the cities of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem will go and cry to the gods to whom they burn incense. But they surely will not save them in the time of their disaster. For your gods are as many as your cities, O Judah, and as many as the streets of Jerusalem are the altars you have set up to the shameful thing, altars to burn incense to Baal. So by listening to the false prophets prophets and their own evil hearts, right, the end of verse 8 or the middle of verse 8, God says, because of that, you have turned to other gods, ones that will tell you what you want to hear. And as a result, verse 11, disaster is coming. God's saying, my wrath is being poured out on you because of your idolatry. They've exchanged the worship of God for lies. They've exchanged the worship of the Creator for the created thing. Turn back to chapter 5. And verse 7. And we see here why God sees idolatry as such a a huge problem. Why should I pardon you? Your sons have forsaken me. This is God speaking through Jeremiah. Your sons have forsaken me and sworn by those who are not gods. When I had fed them to the full, they committed adultery and trooped to the harlot's house. So here's God pouring out His gifts on them. I fed you. I filled you up. I gave you everything that you could possibly want. And what did you do? You turned away from me. You went to the harlot's house. Verse 8, they were well-fed, lusty horses, each one neighing after his neighbor's wife. Shall I not punish these people, declares the Lord? And on a nation such as this, shall I not avenge myself? 
Go, go up through her vine rows and destroy. Do not ex- execute a complete destruction. Strip away her branches, for they are not the Lord's. For the house of the Lord and the house of Judah have dealt very treacherously with me, declares the Lord. They have lied about the Lord and said, Not he. Misfortune will not come on us, and we will not see sword or famine. The prophets are as wind, and the word is not in them. Thus it will be done to them. So, even though these gods are not real, there's only one true God, right? The worship of them has resulted in immoral acts. And so, turning one's back on the true God is to abandon true moral criteria and so will result in necessary, unethical, ungodly behaviors. And then, also what we notice in these verses is that God must avenge Himself, verse 9. And then in verse 12, God says that they're lying about Him. That is, that, that they're misrepresenting who God really is. And this is a great evil. And God's saying, how can I not judge sinners who brought down and trampled underfoot the good things that I had have given to them? And you kind of hear that kind of language in Hebrews when you have some who've come so close to the faith and have tasted of the goodness of God and have have experienced some of the blessings of being within a covenant community and then they have trampled underfoot the blood of Jesus Christ as if it's of no value. And that's that's in a sense what Judah is doing to God and all the blessings that he has poured out on them. They're trampling them underfoot and going off um, and worshiping idols. So ultimately they're I mean, in one sense, false gods have to be judged. But how can you judge something that's not real, right? Instead, what you judge is the people who worship them. And that's what God does. Um, All right, any questions on that? All right, chapter 27, we've got a keep hustling through here so we can get to the video and to Lamentations. But um, really the first 28 chapters is God's frustration with, with, uh, with Judah. And so the reason I went to chapter 11 is because that kind of gives us a summary of what the first 28 chapters are about. In chapter 27, we see this calamity that's going to come. Um, God's going to come uh, uh, through the Babylonians. Remember Habakkuk? When Habakkuk said, God, why are you going to continue to let evil continue in Judah? People are, are mistreating the poor. They don't care about justice. And God says, oh, don't worry. Judgment's coming. In fact, it's coming through the Babylonians. And Habakkuk says, what? Not them. They're more wicked than we are. So we can see you coming in judgment, but, but not from the Babylonians. But that's, in fact, what God does. Look at verse 5. Chapter 27. I have made the earth, the men, and the beasts which are on the face of the earth by my great power and by my outstretched arm, and I will give it to the one who is pleasing in my sight. Now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant, and I have given him also the wild animals of the field to serve him. All the nations shall serve him and his son and his grandson until the time of his own land comes. Then many nations and great kings will make him their servant. So, verse 6 says, I've given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the Babylonians. What God's saying is, listen, 
even the evil acts of men. Nebuchadnezzar and his wicked overthrow of Judah is governed by a sovereign God, right? Even that action is governed by God. Jerusalem's fall was not a surprise. God's not reacting. He's not going, uh-oh, Jerusalem's down. They're, down. they're down for the count. What am I going to do now? No, He actually planned it. He knew that it was going to happen. Um, all right. They're trying to decide what, what parts to, to skip through quick here because we need to keep moving. Well, let's just see uh, see how far we can get in this total depravity section. Why has all this happened? Why disaster? Why why break the covenant? I mean, why was this covenant broken? Why couldn't the people keep it? And ultimately, it comes down to the human heart. Look at chapter six, verse ten. Chapter 6, verse 10. Let someone read that for us. So, the problem is not they're incompetent or ignorant. It's that they cannot hear because they don't have the desire to hear. Right? Do you see that in the text? They cannot listen. And the, the last line says, they have no delight in listening. Right? So the people who can't hear, the people who are... So let's take you and your unbelieving coworker. You keep calling them to salvation, sharing with them the Gospel, and they keep rejecting it. Why is it? You know, the, the, this really deep question, why is it that they keep rejecting me? When I heard it, eventually I came around and responded, right? So why not them? And the answer is they have no desire. They have a depraved heart. So why the lack of desire then? That's the next question. I mean, why is it that they lack this desire? Turn to chapter 17, verse 1. And this will help us answer the question, why, why is it that their, their hearts are, are disinclined to hear the Word of God? Chapter 17, verse 1, The sin of Judah is written down with an iron stylus. With a diamond point it is engraved upon the tablet of their heart and on the horns of their altar. So the sin of Judah is, is engraved on their heart with a diamond point. It's etched on there. Look at verse 9. The heart is more deceitful than all else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The heart is wicked at its very core. The, the human being who is depraved is, is wicked. And that's how crippling um, this heart is because it actually disinclines a person to, to, um, to avoid to neglect, to reject the Word of God, and to, to listen to the voice of false gods and sin and all the joys that come from that. 
Look at the effects that this sin has on people. Look at chapter 18, verse 12. But they will say it's hopeless, but we are going to follow our own plans and each of us will act accordingly according to the stubbornness of his evil heart. So, so here's how powerful this heart is. Okay, we, we don't follow our heart. Um, we don't just let our heart lead the way because our heart is corrupt. Uh, particularly unbelieving heart and it, it just leads them right on to the sin. Their behavior follows their heart. And so because their hearts are desperately wicked at their core, they are evil, well, what are they going to lead the person into? Right? What, what are the behaviors going to follow after? They're going to follow after a wicked heart. And then chapter 13, verse 23, see how permanent this is this is a familiar verse probably to you chapter 13 verse 23 can the Ethiopian change his skin or can the leopard change his spots then neither you also can you also do good who are accustomed to doing evil so here's the nature of the human heart at its very core it is wicked it leads a person into wickedness and even if he wanted to change it, which he doesn't, he couldn't. Just as the leper can't just kind of erase his spots and say, I, I want to be, um, I, I want to have a completely clean coat. Instead, uh, or as an Ethiopian can't change his skin, neither can a wicked person change his heart. So the human heart is incapable of, incapable of hearing God's Word. It's restricted to its own desires, emotions, feelings, because sin is carved on it with a diamond point. And so that sin has become the slave master, driving and controlling the man. And, and from a human perspective, there is no way out. This is as condemning as it gets. Um... Turn to chapter 44 and I'll show you um, one other way we can look at this. Chapter 44, verse 15. So the, the destruction of Jerusalem was prophesied in the first several chapters. Then it actually came in chapter 39. Um, actually, it was kind of prophesied again there because that was where Hezekiah showed all of his riches to the Babylonians and, and God said, well, that was foolish because now they're going to take all that stuff. And, um, but not in your lifetime, Hezekiah. will come in your sons. And so Hezekiah said, oh, this is a good word. So that was chapter 39. Well, by this time, we're in chapter 44. The destruction has already come. Judah has been taken into exile. And here we are in verse 15. Then all the men who are aware of their wives being, uh, who are burning sacrifices to other gods along with all the women who are standing by as a large assembly, including all the people who are living in Pathros in the land of Egypt, responded to Jeremiah saying, As for the message that you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord, we are not going to listen to you. But rather, we will certainly carry out every word that has proceeded from our mouths by burning sacrifices to the Queen of Heaven and pouring out drink offerings to her, just as we ourselves, our forefathers, our kings, our princes did in the cities of Judah, and in the streets of Jerusalem, and then we had plenty of food and were well off and, so, and saw no misfortune. So that's what they think of, of God, the God of Israel, right? We were much better off when we were listening to ourselves and following after the false gods. 
Verse 18, But since we stopped burning sacrifices to the Queen of Heaven and pouring out drink offerings to her, we have lacked everything and have, we have, and, and have met our end by the sword and by famine. I mean, this is, isn't this amazing? Jeremiah comes. He prophesies, Listen, Babylon's coming to destroy you. You need to repent. No, we're not going to repent. And they, they resist and resist and resist. And finally, they do some kind of external repentance, um, some sort of external change, because that's what they're talking about here. And now they look back on it. They see all these circumstances that actually came to pass that Jeremiah had prophesied. They're like, well, that was foolish of us. They still won't repent. The, the fact is their hearts are still corrupt. They're still following after these false gods, even though God has come with great power and shown that this would happen just as he said it would. Well, um, there's a big change that happens after chapter 29. And, um, and the big change is that God is now creating a new covenant. In fact, that's what it's called, the new covenant. And it's a covenant that actually replaces the Mosaic covenant. So, you still have the Noahic covenant, that's the covenant between God and Noah. I will never destroy the earth again with water. That's still in effect. That was a one-sided covenant. That was not something that the people had to obey. That was all God. So that's going to happen. The Abrahamic covenant was where God said to Abraham, through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That's another one-sided covenant. God's going to um, make it happen. Abraham didn't have to obey it, any of the, the requirements under it. The Mosaic covenant was a two-sided covenant. So both had to come into agreement. That's where... God gave the laws to Moses, remember, at Mount Sinai, and they were supposed to follow. And God says, if you do these things, you'll be blessed. If you don't, you'll be cursed, right? But what happens when they don't obey it? Well, then it doesn't work, right? So God has to bring along a new covenant. So now this new covenant is coming, and it's actually going to work because God's going to give the people a new heart. That's the big difference. That's the problem that we've been seeing, right? They can't obey the Mosaic Covenant. Why? They're corrupt hearts. Right Now, obviously, a believer has some capacity to obey God, but he can't obey it fully, even. And even us, right? We can't fully obey the law of Christ, and so even we need perfect hearts. And um, if you're like me, you don't have a perfect heart right now. You still have effects of depravity. Now, you're not totally depraved like we just talked about before where these people, they are, they are evil at the core and they have no desire to follow after God. We're, we, but we still have effects of depravity. We still have a lust for sin. We still turn away from God at times. So what we ultimately need, which God will give us in the next life, in the millennial kingdom and throughout eternity, is this new heart. And at that time, we will be able to obey this new covenant. And... Unfortunately, we don't have time to, to look at the text there in chapter 31, but there, there's the passage for you. Um, you. You might be familiar with those verses anyway, and it's actually going to come up in the video. So, do you have any questions on, on that? All right, let's look at the video. Thank you. 
going to report taking the And sadly, his words became reality. Jeremiah lived through the siege and destruction of Jerusalem and witnessed that God Now this book came into existence in a really interesting way. Chapter 36 tells us that after 20 years of Jeremiah's preaching and solution, God called him to collect all of his sermons and poems and essays and different writers, which Jeremiah did by his own scribe named Baruch, who wrote down and compiled all of his materials into this book. Now Baruch also gathered lots of stories about Jeremiah, and he linked all the pieces together. And so this is why the book reads like an anthology, a collection of collections. It's all been arranged to present this prophet as a messenger of God, justice, the book begins with God calling Jeremiah to be a prophet. He's given a dual vocation. He will be a prophet to Israel, but also to the nation. And his words will both uproot and tear down, but also plant and build up. In other words, he's going to accuse Israel and warn them of God's judgment, but he also has a message of hope to Jesus. Now this opening perfectly summarizes the first of our
were not abandoned by people. Rather, he would renew his covenant with and transfer the promise. Jeremiah develops this promise, and he says that God is going to one day inscribe the laws of this world, not on tablets, but rather on the hearts of the people. He's going to heal their rebellion so that they can truly one day love and follow his word. And so one day, Israel will return back to the land. The Messiah from the line of David is going to come, and that's when all nations will come to recognize Israel's God as So these chapters are showing that despite Israel's apostasy, God is not going to let Israel's sin get entangled in its rapid. His own faithfulness will bring about the fulfillment of his promises After this, we find a large collection of poems about how God is going to use Babylon to judge the nations around Israel. So Egypt, Philistia, Moab, Edom, Amor, Moscow, but then, surprisingly, the longest poems are saved for God. And they're about God's coming judgment on Babylon. So although God used this nation to execute his justice, God doesn't endorse their violence. And so Babylon, too, will come under the standard of God. And so Jeremiah denounces this nation's pride and injustice. Now, Babylon is larger than life. And it reminds us of the image of Babylon all the way back in chapter 11. Babylon has become the archetypal rebellious nation. In their glorification of wealth and war, God is going to give this nation over to its The book concludes with a story taken from the end of the book of Second. It tells about Babylon's final attack on Jerusalem, how they destroyed the city walls and burned the temple and the people in exile. The story shows how Jeremiah's warnings of judgment in chapters 1 to 24 were fulfilled. But then, the chapter ends with a short story about the captive Israelite king Jehoiakim, the heir to the line of David. And the king of Babylon releases his captive, shows him favor, and invites him to eat at the royal table for the rest of his life, and that's how the book ends. So it's a little glimmer of hope. And this recalls Jeremiah's promises of hope in chapters 13 and 33. God hasn't abandoned his people or the promise of a future coming to and so while this book contains a huge amount of warning and judgment, the final words include with a note of hope for the future. And that is the book that Jeremiah is all about. All right. So Lamentations is next, and Lamentations is also written by Jeremiah, and it's set right after Jerusalem is destroyed, and it's set from the perspective of uh, uh, Jerusalem being personified as a woman who's mourning over losing her children, and that there's no one there to comfort her. And so the theme there is we are in mourning because God has done this, even though it's our fault, now we need Him to change our hearts, for He will again comfort us. So let's look at chapter 3 of Lamentations. And what you see here is these twin doctrines of God's sovereignty and our responsibility. That God is sovereign over these things. He's not out of control. Um, he, he has all these things planned. But at the same time, we take responsibility for our own actions. Verse 37 who is there who speaks and it comes to pass unless unless the Lord has commanded it? It is not from the mouth of the Most High 
or is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? Why should any living mortal or any man offer complaint in view of his sins? And then notice verse 40, let us examine and probe our ways and let us return to the Lord. So verses 37 to 39, God is saying all these things happen because I've planned them. None of these things can happen apart from my sovereign control. But, verse 40, we need to examine ourselves. Right? We need to take responsibility for our actions. When we get to the final day of judgment, whether that be at the great white throne judgment and a person is sent off into eternal hell or at the judgment seat of Christ, the answer is not going to suffice to say, God, you were sovereign over all things, so I'm not going to take responsibility for anything that I did. No, God, God expects us and we are responsible for our own sins. And Jeremiah uh, affirms that, that we need God and we need His sovereignty and we need Him to give to us new hearts. Look at chapter 5, verse 21. Restore us to You, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew Your days as of old. So here's a prayer from the people saying, listen, you know, we can't do this on our own. We need You. And this is what we pray when we ask God to save us. We're, we're actually saying, God, I can't save myself. Or when we pray for our friend to be saved. right? We're saying that because we know that that person can't save themselves. We can't save that person. Only God can. So we, that's why we pray. And this book also holds up, holds up hope for the lost as well. Chapter 3, verse 31. Chapter 3, verse 31, For the Lord will not reject forever, for if He causes grief, then He will have compassion according to His abundant loving kindness, for He does not affect willingly or grieve. Uh, he does not afflict willingly or grieve the sons of men. So, God, when He brings His chastening wrath on His people, it's for their good. It's to bring them to a place of repentance. This book is also the, the book from which we get uh, the song Great is Thy Faithfulness, verses 22 and 23 of chapter 3. You can look at those as well. All right, let's take a look at the video and then we'll be dismissed.
promises. And none of this is looked down on the Bible. Just the opposite. These poems of lament give a sacred dignity to And so these human words of grief that are addressed to God have now become part of God's word. The design of these five poems is very intentional. It's part of the semester. So chapters one through four are called acrostic, which means alphabet. Each poetic verse begins with a new letter for the alphabet, which is made up of Now this very ordered and linear structure is in stark contrast to the disorder of the pain and the confused grief that the story is. So it's like Israel's suffering is explored A to Z and is trying to express something that is being expressed. Chapters one and two each have one verse per letter, and then a little similar design. The themes are very different. So chapter one focuses on the grief and shame of a figure called Lady Zion. The poet personifies the city of Jerusalem as a widow, also called the doctor. And she sits alone, she's bereaved of her loved one, devastated. No one comes to her. She's very powerful. And then Lady Zion speaks. She calls on the Lord to notice her story. And through this image, the poet is showing that the city's destruction brought a level of psychological it can only be expressed as the experience of a funeral and the death of a love. Chapter 2 focuses on the fall of Jerusalem and how it was a consequence of Israel's sin and was brought about by God's wrath, which is a key word in this poem. Now it's important to remember that in the Bible, God's wrath is not spontaneous falling. The biblical poets and prophets, they use this word to talk about God's justice. So Israel has entered a covenant agreement with God Thank you. 
and the anointed king from the line of David is captured. So the poem's power comes from a shock of these contrasts and it's exploring the depth of the suffering that Israel brought. Now the final poem is unique because it breaks the divine pattern. It's the same length as all the other alphabet poems, but the alphabet order is strong. It's like the poet can't hold it together anymore and his grief is exploded back. The poem is a communal prayer for God's mercy. Israel begs God not to ignore their suffering. And the poem offers a long list of all of the different kinds of people who are devastated by the fall. They ask God not to forget them. And they lament on behalf of others, giving voice to this. Suffering in silence is just not a virtue in God's people are not asked to deny their emotions, to voice their protest, to vent their feelings, pour it all out. The book ends with something of a the poet acknowledges that God is the eternal king of the world, but also that Israel's circumstances make them feel like God is nowhere to be found. And so the final words of the book leave this tension totally unresolved. They ask, unless you've totally rejected that, in the book. The poet doesn't offer a nice, neat conclusion, much like our own The story of the Bible doesn't end here. But this very important book shows us how lament, prayer, grief are a crucial part of the journey of faith of God's people in the world of God. That is the lamentation of all God. All right, let's pray. Father, we um, we can relate with um, the thoughts that we just considered. That uh, there are times when we feel like you are far away and we know we have to rely on your promises at those times especially we need to keep our eyes fixed on you um, the, the nature of pain and suffering and difficulty is that it feels like we're being punished but, but Lord we need to hold fast to you so help us to do that and in times when, when things are good like with, with the time of Jeremiah the beginning of uh, Judah there when things are going well God you had fed them and, and given them so much and yet they still wandered away into to adultery. Um, so help us not to turn away from you whether we have much or whether we have little. We pray for your help in this in Jesus' name. Amen.